The people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Indeed, the people of Israel have done nothing but arouse my anger with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. From the day it was built until now, this city has so aroused my anger and wrath that I must remove it from my sight. The people of Israel and Judah have provoked me by all the evil they have done. They, their kings and officials, their priests and prophets, the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem. They turn their backs to me and not their faces. Though I taught them again and again, they would not listen or respond to discipline. They set up their vile images in the house that bears my name and defiled it. They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Melech. Though I never commanded, nor did it enter my mind, that they should do such a detestable thing and so make Judah sin. You are saying about this city, be the sword, famine and plague, it will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon. But this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me and that all will then go well for them and for their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them and I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. And the next passage will be from 2 Corinthians and we're looking at chapter 6 verse 14 to 7 verse 3. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. Thanks, Lauren. Well, great to be with you. Um, Netflix has a new show about um, a polygamous, supposedly Mormon cult. Is that, are they pushing that on anyone else or is that just me? One of, the, um, one of them in the, in the show says this, we, we didn't really leave our property in Salt Lake City. We didn't go to movies. Our activities were within our own group. 
They even took away the books that had outside influences. We got further and further away from society. And you find out in the show that um, it was for control. It was so that the leaders could hide what they were doing, which was um, men with, with many, many wives, often underage and, and against their will. It's very it's terrible. It's quite hard to watch. Um, and just as an aside, it starts with a, a quote from the Bible, um, from Paul in Ephesians, which is so misleading. Because nothing that happens in the show comes from the Bible, and they don't even talk about the Bible. It's all based on the teachings of a false teacher, a so-called prophet, who, who time and time again goes against the Bible. So Paul, for example, says that church leaders should only have one wife, not 62. But as you read this passage, I wonder if it sounds a little bit like a separatist cult. Verse 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Verse 15, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Verse 17, come out from them and be separate. What does this passage mean for us? Am I booming a little bit? I can hear myself a lot. There you go. What does this passage mean for us? Is it about who to marry? That's what some people have been taught it's about. But it never mentions marriage. So what does it apply to? And where do you draw the line? Is it about your job? What about your friends or your family or your sports team? Or is it about what influences you? And and if that's the case, then what would that mean for the content that we're, we're to consume? What is God asking us to do in this passage? And tonight, if we discover that we have been doing it wrong, would you change? Is God's word your authority? Why don't I pray that God will help us? Father, you are holy. And we know that apart from the kind work of your spirit, our sinful nature resists the truth about you. But you promise that through your word, the Holy Spirit changes our hearts and opens our eyes. So please, Lord, do that for us tonight. Help us to rightly understand your word and enable us to want to do it whatever it asks. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is God asking us to do in this passage? There's a clue that it's more complicated than first seems, doesn't there? Uh, isn't there? If you read what else Paul tells this church to do. So flick back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, this is from an earlier letter that Paul wrote to the same church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9... He clarifies something that he'd said to them earlier. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. Paul goes out of his way to clarify, I didn't mean for you to stop hanging out with non-Christian people. I was talking about the people who call themselves Christians. If they're not living like it, then it's not loving to treat them as though they're real Christians. Now, that's a whole other sermon, isn't it? But do you see that Paul goes out of his way to say that we're not to withdraw from the world because we're to love our neighbor. And God has sent us, we saw last week, as his messengers to tell everyone that he wants to forgive them and save them in Jesus. And so flick back to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul can't be telling us, to keep away from the world. 
Now he is saying something different in this passage to what he was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because here he is actually talking about unbelievers. And so, so what is he saying? Let's have a closer look. But as we do that, I'm aware it's a bit awkward, isn't it? Because we've got, as we just heard, we've got new people with us every week, new to church, not believers, and we, we are so glad that you're here. And tonight we just happen to be up to this bit. It's a bit awkward. Well, I thought instead of trying to hide the things that are awkward, I'd point them all out. I actually think it'll make more sense. There are five assumptions in this passage, at least, I think, that are quite uncomfortable for people in this world. But once you see them, it helps you to realize why this is not just harsh and arbitrary. So let's go through them from least offensive to most offensive. Here we go. Number one, it assumes that there's a spiritual realm. Verse 16 talks about the living God. But especially verse 15, Paul contrasts Christ... And Belial, that's another name for the prince of demons, also known as Satan. That's quite uncomfortable because many people today don't believe in anything except what you can see. But this says, no, there's also the unseen, the spiritual world. And that helps us to realize that Paul is not talking about morality. He's talking about navigating life in a spiritual world. Assumption number two. There's only one true God. Now we're getting more offensive, aren't we? There's only one true God. Because most people today want to think that all religions are equally valid. This passage assumes just the opposite. The spiritual realm is divided into two categories, the true God and pretenders. Look at verse 16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? The word idol means false God. It's often a statue, but not always. And Paul contrasts that with the living God, not a God, the God, not made of stone, the living God. And Paul assumes in this passage that the true God is the one revealed by Christ. That's why in verse 15 he puts Christ on one side and Belial, the demonic, on the other. Now that's very offensive to say, isn't it? There's one true God unlike any other spiritual force, and he is the one that Jesus reveals. But that's what this passage assumes. I wonder if you've heard someone say something like this. You Christians, you already reject almost all of the millions of so-called gods except one. Why not just go one step further and believe in one less God? Who's heard something like that? Ricky Gervais has said it. Not many of you have said it, have heard it. Well, That's to misunderstand completely the difference between God on the one hand and the gods on the other hand. They're not the same thing. You see, the gods, the gods, were spiritual beings that were thought to exist in the world, Thor and Zeus and so on. But that's not what we mean by God. God is not on the list of things that exist in the world. He's the source of all existence himself. He's not found in the universe. He's the fundamental reality that gives rise to the universe. And so if you have heard that sort of claim being said, the answer is, well, yes, we do reject the millions of so-called gods, the spiritual beings who call themselves God, but we don't reject the source of all being himself. That's not just one step further. That's a completely different thing. So there's number two. Paul assumes there's one true God, And he's the one revealed by Jesus Christ. Assumption number three, 
good and evil are real. Our world says um, that we are free to define what's good and bad ourselves, but this passage assumes that goodness and badness are real and we can't just make them up. Look at verse 14. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? There is such a thing as righteousness and there is such a thing as wickedness and they're different. Now some things can have a bit of both. A lie to protect someone else. Well, the lie is bad. The motive could be good. But it's not this third category of just mush, okay? What we call grey is really a mixture of good things and bad things. And if you separate it out and think about it, that's what you find. But our world likes to treat everything as mush. There's nothing that's definitely good or definitely bad. Except if you say something that's different to what's most popular to say today, that's definitely bad, even if it's different to what was bad a year ago, and it'll be different again in two years' time. People are living in fear today, aren't they? Because you don't know how your words today will be interpreted in the future. The standards constantly change because we're just making it up as we go. Paul says, no, right and wrong, well, he assumes right and wrong don't change, Because righteousness is what God is like. And God is good. In other words, he's holy. Thank you. In other words, he's holy. So what he desires and what he commands is good. And God never changes. Now that's liberating, isn't it? If you do what's right in God's eyes, you've done what's good, no matter what people say about it in two years' time or 200 years' time. But it also means that living differently to God's commands is wickedness. Sin is not just naughty, it's genuinely evil. But most people don't agree with that, and so there's the third assumption. Good and evil are real. Two more. Number four, because there's only one true God, idolatry is evil. Now, most people don't agree with that. People put little statues of gods in their gardens for decoration... And no one bats an eyelid. But it's not just statues. Um, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 that greed is idolatry. Because an idol is anything that we put in the place of God, anything that you live for and worship. And so look at chapter, look at this passage, verse 16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? I don't think we realize the horror of idolatry. Let me give you an illustration that might help somewhat. Imagine a, imagine a teenager. We've got some teenagers. Imagine a teenager living in their parents' house, eating their parents' food and wearing the clothes they bought, playing with all the um, toys and gadgets that they've been given. And they stick to all the house rules. They do the chores. They clean up after themselves. They don't fight with their brothers and sisters. They even, they even get into their schoolwork without being told. Now, here's the thing. They never talk to their parents except when they want something. Apart from asking for the car keys, they haven't said one word to them in years. There's no love, no affection, and no thanks. Is that a good kid? From the outside, you'd say yes. But from the parents' perspective, that's an absolute tragedy. 
Well, that's what idolatry does to God. We live in his house, but we replace him with false gods. And so idolatry is a rejection of the true and living God. It, the one who really did create everything. It robs him of thanks and obedience and love that he created us to enjoy with him. And so that's why the very first commandment in the Ten Commandments is what? You shall have no other gods before me. That's why when Paul walked through the city of Athens in Acts chapter 17, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And Corinth was just like that as well. Temples and shrines to other gods everywhere. Along with sinful things that were done as part of that worship, temple prostitutes and so on. What about the central coast? We don't have a temple of Artemis. But what about the idol of greed? That's everywhere, isn't it? Or lifestyle or health. You fill in the blanks. Do you see why this assumption is so confronting? It, it means that if a person's life is not devoted to God, they're living for something else. They're an idolater. They're breaking the biggest commandment. They're sinning against God, even if they're a very nice person and keep most of the rules on the outside. There's number four. Because there's only one true God, idolatry is evil. Now all of those may be confronting, but they're all just true if that second one is true, isn't it? So these aren't just assumptions. They're actually a window to see the true nature of reality. And that brings us to the last assumption, number five. Perhaps the most outrageous of all, there is a profound difference between a believer and an unbeliever. Verse 15 what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now, how does that sit with you? Most people would say we're basically the same, just different beliefs. In fact, most people probably know a Christian that behaves worse than they do. But do you notice where Paul puts unbelievers? There are two sides to each of these comparisons in these questions. And Paul puts them on the other side. To say no to the God revealed by Jesus is to live for an idol. To say no to the light of the world is to be in darkness. But to believe in Jesus means that you change your allegiance. That's what it means to become a Christian. It means you turn away from idols. Now, we're not perfect. We're not righteous in ourselves. That's the whole point of forgiveness. We'll come to that. But to become a Christian is to become a totally different thing. Because, and here we come to the very heart of the passage, something happens to a person when they become a Christian. Look at verse 16. We, those who believe in Jesus, we are the temple of the living God. There's the core truth of this passage. That's why Paul follows it with like a little kebab that he makes of Old Testament promises. Stacks them all up on the skewer. He's proven his point. He's proven this point, this central truth, that we're the temple of the living God. And the instructions at the start of this passage that we've just seen, and, and there's more at the end of this passage in chapter 7, verse 1, they're just the applications of this core truth. Something has happened to us as Christians, a spiritual change, which is why it's important to remember that the spiritual realm is real. It's not just a metaphor. We have become the temple of the living God. Now, what does that actually mean? Well, look at the first quote from Leviticus. It says, I will live with them 
and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. It promises two things. Number one, presence. I will live with them. And number two, relationship. Presence and relationships. I will be their God. That's the same in the other quotes. Verse 17, I'll receive you. Verse 18, I will be, God says, a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. Do you hear the the warmth of God's heart? Despite our idolatry, God wants to receive us and give us his presence and adopt us as his children with him as our father. Now that promise is actually the story of the whole Bible. Genesis chapter 1, it says that God walked with the very first humans in the garden. That's the relationship that we were made for. But the first humans did what we've all done ever since and turned away from him and disobeyed his commands. And so that relationship was broken. And now we face an eternity separated from his presence. But God doesn't give up on us. And so in Leviticus, God promises to fix what was lost. But how? How can a holy God live with unholy people? Well, in Leviticus, he does it through the temple and through sacrifices. If you'd asked an Israelite, does God live among us? They would have said, yeah, in that building over there. God God is everywhere, but he's there in a special way. What a privilege. But there was always something incomplete about it, wasn't there? Because he's over there in the temple, but I'm over here. In fact, the whole system was designed to teach us that sinful human beings like me can't just waltz into God's presence. That's what the sacrifices communicated. Constant death, a constant reminder of the punishment for sin and the truth that God and sin don't mix. But sheep and goats can't take away our sin. A human being has sinned and so a human being has to pay the price. Which is why God came as a human and he lived among us and walked among us. Do you hear the echoes of that promise? And as we saw last week, Jesus died on the cross to deal with our sin. The center of Christianity, that is what makes us holy and righteous. Not because we do righteous things or are better than others, because he gives us his righteousness. And so we are now able to have something better than they had in the days of Leviticus. Not just God in that temple over there, God in us. We are the temple. As Paul quotes from Leviticus, he's teaching us that it was actually always about something bigger than that, the old, than, than what they had. The Old Testament is really about Jesus and his people. And the story goes on, doesn't it? Because one day Jesus will return and because of him we will live forever with God and walk with him even more perfectly again in heaven. So do you see, you can trace this theme all the way through the whole Bible. You can ask at every point, where is the temple? Well, where is it right now? It's us. Not just each of us individually, although that is true. The Bible does say, get the next slide up. The Bible does say that each of us is a temple individually. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you. 
When a person trusts in Jesus, God himself comes to live in you by his spirit. You have a relationship with the God of the universe and he is present with you. But here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it doesn't say you are temples. It says we, plural, are the temple, singular, us together. Because he's in us, that means that as we get together, as you walk among us, God walks among us in you. That's why we don't call this building a temple. This is not a holy place. There are some some churches that have a little cabinet up the front with the bread of communion in it, as though that's where Jesus is. No, no, no. Where's Jesus? We are the temple of the living God. Even now, he's in our midst as we wait to be more fully with him one day in the future. Does that blow your mind? What a privilege. The living God, the Lord Almighty, in us and among us. That is the fundamental difference between a believer and an unbeliever. And so if you are, a, um, if you are an unbeliever here tonight, it's great to have you with us. We love you. We love that you're here. We're so stoked. Let me say, this is, it, sound, it might sound exclusive. It's not exclusive. It's very inclusive in the sense that God wants to include you. Look at chapter 5, verse 20. Paul says he's Christ's ambassador as though God was making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, Paul says, be reconciled to God. God offers this relationship, his presence, a future with him forever. And he wants to include you. You can become a believer in Jesus even right now. Let me, in fact, urge you, as Paul does, be reconciled to God. And if you've done that, we are the temple of God. There's the core truth of this passage, and that means we need to change how we live. How can the temple of God be caught up in idolatry or in sinful behavior? That's the point that Paul makes in the other quotes. From Israel's time in exile, when they were surrounded by the idolatry in Babylon, Paul quotes from them and says, Come out from them and be separate, verse 17. And so Paul applies that to us in chapter 7, verse 1. Let us, let you, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Now, it's not that. Touching sinful things makes you unclean. You've got to read this with the rest of what Paul says. He's talking about sinful behaviours. Brothers and sisters, we are not to tolerate even the seemingly smallest sins in our lives. Purify yourselves from everything that contaminates. Okay, well, we've had a close look at the passage. What about verse 14? What does that mean? Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Well, it helps to know what a yoke is, and it's not an egg yoke. 
If you've been around church for a while, you know what I'm talking about. Sorry if you haven't. Bit of an in-joke there, but there you go. What's a yoke? A yoke is a wooden harness they put on animals. And so Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 10 says, Don't plow with an ox and a donkey yoke together. That's the metaphor that he's drawing on here. Now I heard Formo use a cracker of an illustration on Friday night at youth group. What was it? Two teenagers in one shirt. And he said to one of them, go for a run, the other one do push-ups. What happened? Chaos, I imagine. See, you understand the metaphor, don't you? If people are pulling in different directions, it's not good to yoke them together. I think one other detail is helpful. Verse 14 doesn't have the normal word for yoke. It's a tweak on that word. Uh, It's the word hetero-yoked. Differently yoked. Incompatibly yoked. So it's not saying never be in relationships at all with unbelievers, but never be in relationships that cause you to be yoked to them in a way that doesn't fit with who you are as a Christian. I'll say it again. Never be in relationships that cause you to be yoked in a way that doesn't fit with who you are as a Christian. I think some examples make it clearer. It's not... Don't join the soccer team, is it? But don't give the soccer team your loyalty so much that you go along with everything they say or do, even if it's sinful. Maybe they say, team bond... What was that? Maybe they say, um, it's team bonding, we're going to go to a strip club. If you're part of the team, you'll come. You say, well, I'm sorry, if, if that's what it means to be on the team... I'm out. And if you say that and they let you opt out, then that's fine. You can stay in the team. You're not yoked to them, you're yoked to Jesus. But if you find that you're not the sort of person that's able to opt out of that, to say that to them, that could mean that you have to leave the team. Because we are the temple of God. We can't be involved in sinful behaviours. It's similar with friends, isn't it? This is not saying... Don't be friends, but watch how they're influencing you. And there might even be some friendships or some group situations that you may need to distance yourself from because actually you are yoked under their influence that's causing you to sin. Now, I think this applies to the sorts of causes that we align ourselves with. As Christians, we, we care about the mistreated, We want to see good done in the world. Christians through history have changed the world. But some causes stand for things that aren't in line with God's word. Now, oftentimes we agree with the headline. It's when we keep reading we find a bunch of other things that don't fit with what we're on about. And so if you care about that issue, it might be that you can't actually join that organisation, that like that social media page, go to that protest. You may need to find another way to help out, and I guarantee you there'll be other ways. Let me take a risk and say something that might be controversial. Let me talk about the, uh, the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Because it's been in the news recently, and um, I'm not, I don't know what any of you think of this. I'm not, on, I'm not on social media very much, and I don't have a clue what you think of this. And I want you to hear me really, really carefully. I'm not saying anything 
about what our politicians should do or what us as citizens should or shouldn't do. All I'll say about that is that it's very clear, I think, that European settlers did a lot of damage and a lot of evil things. And there's much more that could be done today to bring healing and restoration to the people that have been affected. Now, I think almost everyone agrees with that. I'm not trying to say anything political one way or the other. And I just want to point out one part of the statement from the heart because it makes a spiritual claim. This is a part of it. It says this sovereignty is a spiritual notion. The ancestral tie between the land or Mother Nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who are born therefrom remain attached thereto and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil or better of sovereignty. Now whether or not I support the overall statement, as a Christian I can't go along with that bit. That's a statement of spirituality. Land has spiritual significance partly because of the belief that the spirits of the ancestors are buried there, or of the ancestors that are buried there. Now that's a different religion. I can respect their religion, I can see that it's important to them, but I can never agree with them on those spiritual claims. Brothers and sisters, as we engage with the, the causes around us, let's do it as Christians. And let's not yoke ourselves to the cause in a way that compromises the truth of God's word. Now, if you disagree with anything I've said there, I'd love to hear from you. Now, all of that applies to work as well, doesn't it? There's nothing inherently wrong with working for unbelievers or with unbelievers, except if it leads you to do things that don't fit with who you are as the temple of God. Don't be yoked to your work in a way that causes you to sin. Now back then, uh, a lot of their work was connected with, with, with actual idols. Is it different today? So much work in our world is about idolatry. People living for money or success or power. And so as we work beside them... Beware of beginning to worship their idols. And that means we should never be so committed to our work that we can't make it to church or growth group regularly and serve in ministry. Because this, we are the temple of God. Now your employer will tell you how valuable you are and how important the work is. And of course they'll tell you that. They might mean it, they might, they might genuinely love you, I'm not denying that. But of course they'll tell you that because it gets more out of you. They can pay you for your time, but they can't, they can't pay you for your heart. They have to win your heart. And so don't let your heart be yoked to them. Paul does say, work for the Lord with all your heart because of Jesus. Do your work with all your heart because of Jesus. That's what's really going on in this passage, actually. It's a battle for their hearts. Chapter 6, verse 11, have a look. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you. 
but you are withholding yours from us as a fair exchange. I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. He says it again right after our passage. It's both sides of this passage. Chapter 7 verse 2, make room for us in your hearts. Someone in my growth group says it sounds like a love letter, doesn't it? It's intense, it's personal. Come back to me, says Paul. Why, why does he say that? Is he just insecure? Have they left him a bad Google review? And you know, the owner always jumps on and clarifies it. No, it all flows out of chapter 5, verse 20, where he begs them to be reconciled to God. And notice right after that, he then goes on to say, be reconciled to me. Paul says that. Do you see how they're connected? Because Paul is God's messenger, you can't be reconciled to God without also listening to Paul. Rejecting Paul's not a personal thing, it's a spiritual thing. That's why he's been doing this chapter after chapter, because he's worried, chapter 6 verse 1, that they will have received God's grace in vain. Their salvation is on the line. It's critical that they start to listen to Paul again, but to do that, Paul realises that they need to, chapter 7 verse 2, make room in their hearts. Why are they drifting from Paul? It's because they have other loyalties and so they're growing distant from Paul and being drawn away to false teachers. If you've been with us over 2 Corinthians, you'll remember from, from previous weeks, the super apostles who in chapter 11 verse 13 he calls, he calls false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ and he even links them to Satan, chapter 11 verse 13 and 14. And the reason for that is chapter 11 verse 4, they preach a different Jesus. And so one of Paul's main goals in this passage is probably to help the Corinthians be no longer loyal, unequally yoked with those particular unbelievers, the false teachers. And so one application for us is that we must not partner with people who oppose Paul or his gospel in ministry. There are people, there are even some churches, who say things like this. Jesus, he was a good guy, but really went off track with Paul. He, he, got, he got it all wrong. Well, if people are saying that, we can't partner with them uh, as a church. Because to oppose Paul is to oppose the messenger of God, is to oppose God. And unlike the false teachers of, of their day, and in fact... In our day as well, if you watch that Netflix show, Paul doesn't take advantage of them. Chapter 7, verse 2, I've wronged no one, I've corrupted no one, I've exploited no one. Instead, chapter 6, verse 4, that, that whole section there, but verse 4, it talks about what he's endured. The troubles, the hardship, the, the beatings, the imprisonments that he suffered for them. The hard work, the sleepless nights, all of it with purity and integrity. He didn't take advantage of them. He poured himself out for them. And so, brothers and sisters, can I encourage you, as, as you read Paul, if you do find things that clash with the way you see the world, maybe even what I've been talking about tonight, and you find it hard to accept what he says, I, I think this passage is really helpful because it shows what might be the reason for that for you. It could be that you've got other loyalties that you've started to care about something that the world cares about. 
And so Paul says, no, remember who you are. You are the temple of God. Be devoted to him. And so listen to his servant Paul. Now that's what verse 14 is all about. And there's some suggestions, I think, on how to apply it. But gee, can't it be grey? Do you feel that? I actually wonder if it's um, that way deliberately. God wants to develop our spiritual sensitivities and help us learn to uh, see the world that way for ourselves and, and make good decisions for ourselves rather than just, bang, here's a book of rules. But there is actually one that's not grey. It's getting married. Now, I didn't start here because it's not the main point, but it, it does apply, doesn't it? When you see that the fundamental difference that Jesus has made to you as a believer how can we even think about entering a lifelong, intimate partnership with someone who's living for a different master? Now, Paul says um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that if you are already married when you become a Christian, you should stay married. It's not a reason to get a divorce. But if you're not married, he says in 1 Corinthians 7... 39 you can marry anyone you like but they must belong to the lord it's very clear now sometimes people say but we have all the same values well if that's true that's a very scary comment about your spiritual condition how could you be worshiping god and be a temple of the holy spirit who's at work inside you to transform you and still have the same values as someone who this passage says is still an idolater. They're not living for Jesus. And even if you have the same values now, if God is growing you, you won't in a decade. Now that doesn't mean you can't love each other. But it's a very, very hard place to live and make decisions for Jesus. It's even harder to raise kids to know and love Jesus. And so if you're single tonight, lots of us here are, What's the point of even dating someone who's not a Christian? Sometimes people think, oh, but I'll, I'll lead them to become a Christian. And that is fantastic. The one or two times out of ten I've seen that happen. But as I've watched, it happened a bunch of times, the other eight out of ten hap times, what happens? It goes the other way and it's devastating. Now, I was talking to my friend Lucy about some of this this week and I thought she had so much wisdom on it I, I wanted to invite her up and get and just have a, a chat with her and get her experiences and wisdom so coming up Lucy you still happy to do this give it give her some love <clears throat> and give some love to Jen as well as she brings over the stories yes, <laughs> thank you Cheers, babe. well how you going Lucy all right I think I stitched myself up eh? at churn we had um pillow wars Yep. Um, so I was being like a marine all night and my voice is cooked. I sound like I've just been on fat. <laughs> this is like smoky voice night. Yeah, it's like Phoebe and friends. <laughs> yeah. Well, for those of you who don't know Lucy, she's um, a 32-year-old. She's been around every night for decades. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost true. And, uh, it's almost true. And you, and you work with kids um, telling them about Jesus yeah. and, and you're, you're single as well. Um, how have you seen... Um, this this pull, this temptation to, to date or marry unbelievers play out? Have you felt it? Have you seen it work in 
the lives of unbelievers, of, of other believers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, personally, my struggles have been less with being attracted to a non-believer. Um, I think when I was younger... Oh, sorry, hang on. I've definitely been attracted to non-believers. You can't tell just by looking at someone if they're a believer. You can look at someone and be like, they're attractive. <laughs> so, like, I'm not some paragon of weird Christian virtue. Uh, that's happened. Um, I've not been tempted to be in a relationship, I don't think, with um, a non-Christian since I was young. Mm. Um, I have seen, I think my struggle has been more with just being single sometimes. Mm. Mm. Um, But I have seen friends go through that, Mm. um, feel that in a different way than I have. Um, I've seen friends who I think the singleness was actually a symptom or a trigger of a deeper discontentment Mm. Um, and they didn't, they let that discontentment with being single plant this seed in their heart um, that was ultimately, I think, a seed against God. Um, They were discontent. They weren't satisfied in God. Mm. He wasn't enough for them. He was like logically, I think especially if you've grown up in um, the church and in Christian circles, you will say and know that God is good and that he is enough um, and that I am his child and I have this phenomenal hope and all these truths you can recite to yourself. Um, but if you don't win your heart to it, you'll feel these different things come in life, whether it's singleness or... Um, a discontentment with missing out on a job or not getting into the uni that you wanted or whatever the next wave or trial or thing is that hits you. Um, I think singleness is one that happens a lot and it's one that is particularly tricky because it's a really emotional one. Mm. A lot of other ones you can sort of logic your way out of um, and talk your way out of and wrap your head around it and go, oh, I feel better. My heart will follow my head in that. Um, I think singleness can be one that can be trickier to do that with. And I've seen friends who have had that happen and it's planted that seed and they've not addressed it. Um, and it's grown and it's festered and it, it's grown into... The discontent has spread into other parts of their lives, not now only that they're single, but they also hate their job they're sick of being on the central coast, it's too small. It, and so it just grew and grew and grew because the singleness itself was a symptom of God not being enough. Mm. Um, and they, I've seen friends who've left God because of it and it was, I would say it was because of that. They, I think, would have pin it on something else um, but they're still chasing those relationships with other people Mm. and they're still discontent in that. Um, And to watch your friends replace or try and replace God with just another person is one of the single most heartbreaking things you'll see. Um, They're trading eternity. They're trading a relationship with God who loves you so profoundly, so deeply, that he gave his one and only son for you. 
to be in relationship with you. You're trading that relationship for one with a person who is just as flawed as you are. Mm. I think we can hold relationships up on this pedestal as though they're going to be this picture-perfect movie moment, ultimately fulfilling thing, but in the same way that I am not the girl from the movie, no guy is the guy from the movie. They don't exist. Well. No. <laughs> I think the one time I had someone once, a sorry, friend. What was, what was the point you're making? I feel we're going on a tangent here. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I just to, <laughs> to be fair, I told Hazy, when I'm nervous, I will ramble um, and I'll repeat myself you're and I'll talk well, in circles. And so I said, helpful. please just pull me in as soon as I start to do it. <laughs> so you're saying they're, they're not even the, the picture-perfect movie. No, no. And so they won't be. And to expect that of a relationship is unfair of the relationship and it's ultimately unfair to you it won't satisfy you in that way only god can satisfy you in that way Mm. um and yeah after you get married the credits don't roll life keeps happening and marriage is from what i've witnessed um a bunch of my friends uh married and in really good beautiful healthy marriages but they're complicated they're not always perfect. They are married to another human being who is annoying and farts and does dumb things and says dumb things and they have to constantly apologise to each other and work through it. And yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Um, my, my wife, who's perfect, <laughs> says, um, you seem like the most contented single person in the world. Um, I imagine you haven't always found that. What, what's helped you to grow in, in contentment? Because you, you said that this, this is the danger. Yeah. And, um, and statistically, there, there will be some people who this will be them. Yeah. What have you learned? What's helped you to grow in contentment? Um, a bunch of things. Uh, I think it's what I was just saying then. Like You've got to re- remind yourself of that truth that you know in your head that God is enough. Remind yourself of who he is and why he's enough. Um, so spend time in the word. Um, spend time in Christian song. The song we were singing at the start has this phenomenal line. Um, oh, it's going to escape my head because I have a microphone. God so loved the world that he gave. No. <laughs> the, um, I will build my life oh, yeah. um, upon his love. It is a firm foundation. Um, when you sing those lines, it, it marries your heart with the words. Um, and so do things like that. Um, I, I think your prayer life, when you're feeling really discontent, I learned this one from a friend who was going through profound heartbreak and in the midst of a breakup, and we were talking about it, and she was peeling back the lid of the box that she'd shoved all her pain into, um, And as she was doing that, she's saying, I just keep praying that God will remind me that he is enough, Mm. that I will be satisfied in in him, um, that the hope of heaven means I'm not missing out. And as she was sort of praying this prayer, the prayer itself changed because she's reminding herself of it. And so I watched that and I was so struck by that that it's become my prayer in points where you feel lonely, um, 
where you see another friend get engaged or and you are so pleased I, this is not a sob story I'm genuinely stoked for my friends as they get engaged um, but I'm able to be I think because I am praying that I am satisfied in God and that he's enough and that I feel that um, and I think a big way that helped to bring my heart alongside my head um, was filling my every day with Christ. Um, so with those practices, with word, with prayer, with um, music, with um, friends, Christian friends, and in conversation with them, but also um, ministry was a really big one for me. Um, I started pouring myself, especially when I was young and at uni, I did Bachelor of Arts. I had all the time in the world um, <laughs> to just blow around however I wanted. So I poured myself into ministry. Not endorsing that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's history. I wasn't going to do anything practical with it. Um, but you, but you, yes, you said to me um, when we were talking, this is so, so helpful, you said, my heart was more and more one to it the more I poured my every day into Christ. Yeah. Um, and and I'll, my reflection on that is Jesus says, where your, heart, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Yeah. And so um, doing the actions, serving God, serving his kingdom, um, more and more every, I was, it was almost every day I had some sort of ministry commitment on. And it became very quickly, it was just it, the thing that I loved. Um, yeah. My heart was one to it. That's where my treasure was. And I was doing it. I was reminding myself of it in a really physical way yeah. every day to the point when I started MTS and I had to explain to my non-Christian parents that I was quitting a job where I was like a year off getting long service leave to go and start an apprenticeship for a church. My dad was like, ah, that's obviously what you love. You should definitely, like he just had zero qualms. They were like, in a very worldly way, go pursue what you love because they could see that I loved God Mm. and ministry helped, yeah, win my heart to it. Wow. Yeah, you, you told me that you you, um, you're, you even felt the cost of saying no to that to go have coffee with a guy. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I, I'll, I'll keep us moving. but um, panic. Your, your, yeah. your heart, I think it's so helpful, your heart can follow your actions, you, you said, and um, philosophers say the same thing, so very good. Yeah. You've, you've lived your way to, to deep truth there. I'm a um, profoundly wise human. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, it, but it doesn't mean you won't feel um, loneliness. Yeah. Um, as you're so rooted in Christ, that, that does really help, though. Um, we're running out of time, but do you have any wisdom for people who want to be married? Is it okay to want that? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's totally natural. It's a natural, good What, what should they do? Thing to want to be married. I think, um, what should you do? Okay, so first, make sure that you're not idolising the idea of marriage and a relationship mm. um, because you're not guaranteed that it will happen or that it will last forever. And it doesn't say anything about you necessarily. Oftentimes I think it no. says something about the sorts of people you met at the sorts of times that you lived. Totally, totally. Or even just circumstantial. Like yeah, even right. if you get married, you're not guaranteed that that person is going to outlive you. Yeah, yeah. There will be a time where you might Very outlive true. them and if that happens, what does that? how does that leave you? Are yeah. you firmly rooted enough in Christ that... You can weather whatever it is. Um, okay, good advice. Don't idolise it. What yep. else? And the second piece, what was the question again? I've completely... um, what wisdom do you have? Is it okay to want to be married? Yeah. What wisdom? Oh, seek it out. Put yourself in 
Seek it out. Yeah, yeah, Make yeah. Be fun. active. Um, I think this is a weird one. I think girls might think that I'm not talking to them. I am actually explicitly talking to you ladies. Um, I have friends who... I've got a friend, she's so beautiful. She is so godly and has been a huge encouragement to me. She's so faithful and she really wanted to be married. It was a huge thing for her. And so she was intentional with um, where she might find a guy worth dating. She didn't spend... um, her time out at pubs just hoping to meet a random guy and then hoping that he also happened to be Christian, she poured herself into times and places where that might happen. Um, And it did happen. And now she has a great husband and is... Yep, I've stopped rambling. Um, (laughs) So so, um, summer mission... Yes. ...conferences... Oh, yeah, go to the uni conferences that we've been plugging for, like, the last few weeks. You'll meet other Christian guys at Christian conferences. Great reason. Yep. Go to college. Bible college. Meet a guy. Why I'd not? love to keep going. We'll probably have to leave it there. Give it up <laughs> for Lucy. Oh, it's not easy to do. We so appreciate it, Lucy. You, got, you do have a lot of wisdom um, and a great testimony. Um, just to add to what Lucy says, dating's a good thing. Go do it. Just don't be mini-married while you do it. Lucy, Lucy gave me that one. Um, but also single in, a, in our society would, would, would mean that you're, um, there's something wrong with you. That's not the way the Bible sees it at all. In fact, Paul was, was single. Um, um, you, you have God. The more clearly you see who you are as a Christian, the temple of God, the more you'll realize what a privilege you have. His presence, relationship. Verse 18, I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters. And so, chapter 7, verse 1, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, help us to see ourselves truly and value it, and so live rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as the band comes up, um, we're going to give expression to what I've just been talking about in a very practical way by celebrating communion. And it's worth thinking about